believe it, a sheep is at the centre of an ideological controversy. This is Fiorella de Maria bringing you the early show all the way from a cold but bright England. Should I say anything on the programme that strikes a chord, interests you or, heaven help me, causes you to choke on your full English breakfast? Please let me know. As always, our call in telephone number is 844-527-8723. That's 844-527-8723. And the Crusader Stadium chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. Good morning, Crusaders. Good morning, everyone signing into the chat room. Yes, you did hear me correctly. Remember yesterday there was the heartwarming, lighthearted story of Britain's loneliest sheep now named Fiona, who was marooned at the bottom of a cliff for two years, which must have been pretty upsetting for a sheep. They are flock animals. They like to be together. Flock herd animals. They like to be together, don't they? Flock of sheep, herd of sheep. Yeah, you know what I mean. They like to be in community. And so this poor old sheep was all on her own for two years after getting stuck. She was rescued by a group of farmers finally, and found to be in pretty good shape. There was plenty of grass, there was fresh water, and she found a cave to live in to shelter from the really awful weather you get in the Scottish Highlands. She now looks like a new sheep. She has been shorn, she looks clean and comfortable, and a massive argument has broken out between the farmers who rescued Fiona and animal rights activists. Um, basically, what happened was uh, animal uh, animal welfare activists, I don't really like saying animal rights because they're not rights, it's, it's welfare. Animal welfare activists uh, were going to rescue her, but they were beaten to it by this group of farmers. And so they missed the big stunt and all the publicity, which obviously really, really knocked them quite badly. So they've decided to take umbrage on Fiona the sheep's behalf uh, because she's going to have a really safe and comfortable life on a farm. And this is a terrible thing. Animal welfare activists are claiming that her celebrity status will be exploited by the farmers. And of course, they do have a point because I think, you know, let's just contemplate for a moment the horrors this poor little sheep faces living in a warm, clean, comfortable stall with plenty of food and people making a fuss of her and the paparazzi wanting to know about her every dodgy relationship and that rumour about the drug fueled nights out when she was a young student, you. I mean, gosh, you know, the life of media intrusion is clearly going to be a problem uh, that animal rights activists have absolutely got to take seriously. It's just... One of those things where I think, really, is that the best you could do? If she was heading to be a series of mutton burgers, I would understand why animal welfare activists might be a bit put out. I, I would sort of get it, even though quite a few sheep are reared for meat. It, it might feel like a bit of an insult to rescue an animal and then go and turn it into a huge barbecue. But Fiona is going to have a lovely home in a petting zoo. It's one of, the, it's one of those farms. It's not just a farm. It's one of those farms, you know, where school children come and they can um, get to know the animals and feed them and things like that. Um, so I think it's, it's a pretty cushy number, really, for Fiona. I, I wish Fiona the sheep all the best. 
But yes, animal welfare activists want her to go somewhere else where she will be safe. So they have currently had to put Fiona the sheep into hiding. She's actually had to go into hiding to avoid being potentially abducted by animal welfare activists. They staged a protest at the farm. This this is really happening. Britain has no other problems at the moment other than the very, very comfortable fate of a sheep. Yeah. Um, lots of comments coming into the chat. I thought this would I thought this would um, tickle everyone. Um, Maggie's saying if they really they're really for protecting animals, shouldn't they just be happy that the farmer saved the sheep? Well, I think this is what people probably think. You know. The, the farmers saved the sheep, so they didn't get there first. The farmers did. There we are. Um, uh, Maggie goes on to say, don't farmers save and rescue and help sheep all the time? I mean, I don't see the daily stories about the other sheep they care for. Did they create a sheep, a T-shirt line with a sheep's head on it? Just you wait, it will happen. I mean, Fiona is now a celebrity, it has to be said. She's, she's been all over the headlines of, of all the newspapers. Um, but I think what happened in this case is that the farmer who owns this sheep was just unable to reach her um, and felt it was it was too dangerous. He couldn't risk his own farm hands falling and you know breaking their necks trying to rescue this sheep. That was why he abandoned the sheep. There has been some criticism of this farmer, uh, but yeah, I think he he just acted uh, in what he felt were the best interests of his uh, his own work workers and his own family. Um, but this other group of farmers who happened to spot Fiona. Uh, just wanted to help. So they did, um, because that's what they do. And the fact that farmers got there before the animal welfare activists did tells you everything you need to know, because, yes, as Maggie's saying, farmers do this. They rescue animals. Um, good morning, Denise. Woke a bit late. That's absolutely fine. We all need a lion from time to time. Uh, Maggie saying, no, these animal people are all over the tops. It seems like the animal welfare people are the true culprits of creating fame for this sheep. Well, he's, they're not, if they're having protests outside the farm, they are making this sheep very, very famous. And I suppose the thing that um, no one seems to be talking about is, dear darling Fiona, the ewe has no idea that she's famous. She's not reading the morning papers. So she isn't seeing herself splashed all over the newspapers because she can't read. So she is blissfully and permanently oblivious to her celebrity status. Um, Jeffy Mann is saying, I, I had wondered about the original farmer who um, who owned the sheep. Yes, it, it was. You know, obviously, people were asking, you know, where did the sheep come from? It, it, uh, she wasn't wild. And yet that was the, the issue. And. I don't know. I I suppose sheep do wander off sometimes, and this is quite unusual that a sheep just getting completely stuck like that. But I actually, I have to. I don't. I don't know if this is in really poor taste. I've got to tell you a story actually about about a lost sheep. Because we like sheep. I mean, I, I love sheep because I, I love walking through fields of sheep. There's a there's a place where I go to walk just to, you know, blow out the cobwebs and things when I need to think. And it involves walking through several fields of sheep. And they're just, they're lovely, they're lovely creatures. But there's a strong biblical resonance, isn't there, with sheep? You know, we sheep come into the, the Gospels quite a lot. And this very young priest once at our parish told a story about how a priest friend of his had been in Latin America somewhere. I think it was, it must have been Peru. And he was 
helping out on a farm. And guess what? He got left in charge of a hundred sheep. And it gets better. One of them went astray. So he did. He said, I'm going to be like Christ here. And he wandered off to rescue this one sheep. But in fact, unlike the way the image you kind of have of a, a shepherd walking through green meadows, in rocky, arid land, it's really quite dangerous. You know, you can miss your footing and twist your ankle and things. So he's walking past, you know, to trying, trying to get to the sheep. And every time the sheep would stop, he'd think, hooray, right, I'm nearly there. And he'd creep up behind it and the sheep would look back at him, practically sticking its tongue out and amble off a bit further away. And this went on and on. And he's pursuing this sheep deeper and deeper into the wilderness, trying to rescue it. He's starting to have very dark thoughts about this sheep. And eventually um, the priest who was telling the story said, and then I asked, Father, what what did you do? And he said, I shot it. And the entire congregation gasped. In leafy Surrey, we don't really like to think about priests shooting sheep it sort of it's like you know the, the shepherd in the in the gospel story had a psychotic episode or something but he was making the point it is in fact difficult and dangerous going after a stray sheep um, and most shepherds aren't up to the task uh, but oh it was worth it um hang on a second just a minute Oh, here we go. Dr. Torres, I can't believe the day has begun. Anyone ever think about those files in the Fiorella files? I always thought the reference was to files of collections of papers put away in a cabinet. Yes, that's more or less the image you should have in your mind. But what if the files are actually the kind used to grind down corns, bunions and calluses? Perhaps our dear Fiorella files has some feet for English bogs. And now the day has begun. Yes, it certainly has, Dr. Torres. My day was not going to be complete without a comment from you. Thank you so much. Um, well, <laughs> yes, well, maybe maybe the, the shepherd, the priest shepherd in the story needs some help with his poor old feet. Jeffy Mann said, when we first got a small flock of Jacob sheep, black and white wool, and two to four horns, those big babies got out and wandered off. We didn't find them for a week. We have a lot of woods and crops in the area. They eventually just wandered home. Oh, that's lovely that they do that. Um, Maggie, you remind me of the younger brother, the ever, ever annoying younger brother you can always count on to, well, be annoying. Yes, see, I never had a brother, Dr. Torres, and I certainly never had a younger brother. So maybe I'm just discovering this delight now. It's one of the, you know, the advantages of doing the early show is I'm learning what it is like to have an annoying brother. My children, of course, have the joy of having an annoying brother and a sister. They say if you're going to have, if you're going to have four children, said so you make, must make sure you have boys and girls, so everyone has a brother and everyone has a sister. So my children get the delight of an annoying sister and an annoying brother each. Dr. Torres, that's what my colleagues at work tell me. Oh, I see. So it's not just reserved for me. I thought I was special. There we go. Um, it is bittersweet chocolate with almonds day today. I have just noted. There we are. Bittersweet chocolate with almonds day. Sounds very nice. I don't think I've ever had them, but I do like chocolate and I do like almonds. So if anyone 
has a particular preference for this kind of delicacy, do let me know. Oh, we've still got National Saxophone Day down at the bottom of the chat room, but it is definitely Bittersweet Almonds Day. And over the weekend, it was National Common Sense Day. You remember that? That thing called common sense that people used to have, which they um, substituted for being offended by everything day. Yes, that thing, uh, common sense. There's an opportunity to celebrate common sense. Common sense is rather needed just at the moment. Oh, sorry, I've been told to refresh my chat room. I am sorry, Maggie. There we are. I'm giving the, completely the wrong information. Um, da, 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 da. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Ah, sorry. Really sorry. There it all is. It is also, besides bittersweet chocolate with almonds day, it is National Retinol Day. I have no idea what retinol is, but I'm sure it's very important. International Merlot Day, International Day of Medical Physics. Medical physics. So are we talking MRIs and things like that? Is that the way medical physics works? Actually, I'm thinking that medical physics must be quite a broad subject because I'm guessing that, say, radiotherapy is a physics-based discovery rather than a chemistry-based discovery. Just a thought. There we go. This one could run and run. Right. Anyway, I think we'll stick with almonds, shall we? And bittersweet chocolate with almonds. Absolutely my idea of a really, really delicious little treat. Okay, it is 21 minutes past the hour. You are listening to The Early Show with your hostess, Fiorella de Maria. If you have missed the show so far, never fear. You can get the whole of The Early Show as a podcast, same day, from crusademax.com. And we have been talking about bittersweet chocolate with almonds day and the various other weird and wonderful national days we apparently have today. And Fiona the sheep, the loneliest sheep in Britain, has become the centre of a controversy between farmers and animal welfare activists over her new home. She's going to have a lovely home with lots of nice, nice warm straw and plenty to eat and plenty of place to run around and lots of people loving her and looking after her. But the animal welfare activists say she is being exploited for her celebrity status. And this is terrible. You know, she could be she could end up being the Princess Diana of the sheep world and this would just be awful, wouldn't it? Sorry, that was in completely poor taste. I shall move swiftly on. Um, aha, Maggie is telling me retinol is the stuff, isn't it, that they put in face cream to help reduce wrinkles for us older ladies. I wouldn't know, but it sounds like something that you do put into into a cream or something like that. That probably is the idea. Why do we have to celebrate it? I suppose if it really does get rid of wrinkles, there must be some good in it somewhere. Well, <clears throat> a, the police are looking for, in the nicest possible way, the police are looking for the owners of a time capsule. A time capsule that was buried in the city of Liverpool at, um, in fact, it was built in, it was buried into a Liverpool police station in 1971 has been unearthed during building work. I wish it had been down there a bit longer, really. 1971 doesn't seem that long for a time capsule, but hey, the world has changed a lot since 1971. Bricklayers calling themselves Swooper, Smiler and Boss planted the time capsule and it contained a newspaper covering the UK's entry into the European Economic Community 
and various other bits and pieces. And Merseyside police said they're very, very keen to speak to anyone involved, although there is, of course, no risk of arrest. Um, since the people who planted the time capsule did not leave their full names, just their nicknames, there is a lot of curiosity now about who these people are. Um, besides... Um, the newspaper, there were various other bits and pieces in there to remind everyone of what the world was like in 1971. It is kind of curious, sort of thinking that that was buried just as Britain was joining the EEC as it was at the time, and now we're out of it again. But there's the headline, yes to Europe, majority 112, 112. Well, there we are. Um, I think time capsule was a great idea. In fact, I would like to know, has anyone ever buried a time capsule? Has anyone ever done that? Um, we buried one in the garden in the middle of lockdown. The thing is, I get this feeling it will probably be dug up, you know, in a couple of years time when we're replacing the shed or something. But we put in it a whole lot of things that remind or we thought would remind people of lockdown you know a mask and things like that a newspaper cutting various bits and pieces but if you were going to bury a time capsule what would you put in it as a way of immortalizing the year 2023 what would you put in a time capsule if you were going to bury one today there we are. There's a question for you. Answers in the chat room. What objects, what newspaper stories would you put in that time capsule? OK. Um, Denise, I'm saying, yes, I've used retinol for a while now. OK, so retinol is a thing. Dr. Torres um, is saying, cutest little farmer rounding up his bunnies and a chicken. You'll like this, Maggie. OK, I will look at the link. Uh, it's, not, it's not for me, apparently, but I will look at the link in the ad break, I promise. Hmm. It is today a big moment for Britain. You've seen all the pageantry of the coronation or the, and the Queen's funeral and everything else. But today is a big day of pageantry for Britain because it is the state opening of Parliament. It's a it's a big day. And this isn't just someone opening a door. The state opening of Parliament is a really big deal. There's a lot of pageantry surrounding it. And it's the first time Charles III as king is opening Parliament. So there's a big procession. Charles III has now arrived at Westminster and he is going to deliver the first king's speech in more than 70 years. It has been a queen's speech all this time. It is the first king's speech in over 70 years. So this is really quite exciting. Everyone's dressed up. I'll try and get some pictures into the chat room. Everyone's dressed up. It's not just the king. And Queen Camilla, the Speaker of the House, all the lords are all done up in their finery. Um, I'm just going to see if I can get some pictures in. Yes, I'm putting some pictures into the chat room. There we are. That's um, some of you may recognise that hall in Parliament. Um, oh, there, there is the king arriving in his carriage. 
Oh, it's so exciting. And you know, there's the crown. Okay, all the pictures are going in. And I know some people think it's a bit too much pageantry. It's a bit too, too much pomp and circumstance. But do you know, we do pageantry very well in this country. You know, the, it's, it's, just, it's just something we do. So I think, you know, since we can, let's do it well. If you get the chance to look up some of the pictures, it is absolutely breathtaking. And however, it is it's pageantry and spectacle. However, it is also a serious moment in the life of the state. The King's Speech lays out the government's plans for the year ahead. It marks the start of the parliamentary year because Parliament goes into recess uh, during the summer. And then this is sort of the formal opening of the parliamentary year. The King did, in fact, step in for the Queen last year uh, because she was uh, a bit frail. And it was it was a way really also of him getting used to doing this. So he will be talking about government plans it won't just be a big burlesque, basically. Um, and a number of the things that are being talked about in the King's speech are, for example, tougher sentences for murderers, more powers for the police. I'm not sure how I feel about more powers for the police. Details like, I mean, this may seem like a small detail, but legislative details like at the moment... Uh, as I mentioned during the coverage of the Lucy Letby case, convicted criminals do not have to be present in court when they are sentenced and sometimes refuse. And Lucy Letby refused to face the court when she was convicted of the murder of multiple small children. And this was felt to be really a bit of an insult that criminals should get away with not having to face up to what they've done. So things are going to change, that it will become compulsory for convicted criminals to appear in court, and they may face further penalties if they refuse to do so. Um, Maggie saying, my junior high school buried a time capsule in 1990, and then we did one in high school as well in 1995. Okay, I wonder if it's still down there. Um Hang on. Jeffy Rand, is there a fundamental difference besides the obvious between a king's speech and a queen's speech? No, there is no difference um, in terms of the constitutional importance. It just, I think because of the film, the king's speech, it just sounds, I don't know, it, it sounds sort of, it sounds almost archaic, in fact, because it is such a very long time since we've had a king. Most of us can't remember ever living at a time of a king. So no, this is um, this is something that the Queen did every year right up until that last year, and it's a way of showing the connection between the monarchy and the state. The fact that we have a constitutional monarchy that the monarch may not interfere in the life of Parliament, um, other than to show support, but also to point out that the government is His Majesty's government. There's a very em embarrassing and funny moment in the film The Queen, which I never got to the end of, where Tony Blair goes to meet the Queen when he becomes Prime Minister. That, that's the first thing happens when you when you become uh, Prime Minister. You go to be sworn in, as it were, and he has no idea what to do. 
and he says, "My Majesty, it's quite exciting. I've never, I've never formed a government before." And um, she actually has to say, "Well, actually, Mr. Blair, it is my government. You are, um, and I ask the questions. It's for me to ask you to form a government in my name." Oh, right, right, of course, of course. And he just looks like a complete idiot. Um, but it's it's a it's a funny moment. But it shows that the relationship between the monarch and the state. So yes, it's it's completely king speech, queen speech. Um, very much the same thing constitutionally. Uh, Jacqueline, that is beautiful. The sky is on fire this morning. I hope it literally isn't on fire. No, it's just very beautiful. This is paint the world orange, isn't it? Dr. Torres, only if the king is a trans man, then the queen's and the king's speech is not different. Dr. Torres, I'm just going to ad lib until we get to the ad break. Um, it is, I tell you something, of all the pictures that are coming out of this, um, it's it's lovely to see a lot of these characters who are members of the House of Lords who have been very famous in their own right. And there's one of the photographs is of Baroness Floella Benjamin. She was the first black woman to be a TV presenter of children's television when I was a child. And there she is looking like a grand old lady. Um, it's just, it's just beautiful to see all these characters coming together and, it's going to be an important day because it's no secret that the government here is in trouble. Um, yes, that's to put it mildly. The Conservative government is facing a massive defeat next year in the elections. It's very difficult to see how they could possibly avoid this. There's dreadful music coming up. Oh, no, I'm going to have to go to an ad break and brace myself for what is coming. You are listening to The Early Show with your hostess, Fiorella to Maria, our call-in telephone number is 844-527-8723. And the chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. Please be nice to me with the music, Mike. Do talk to me. Do join the conversation and look at the lovely pictures in the chat room. The early show will continue in a few moments here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio the way it should be.
good morning, all you early risers and insomniacs, and those of you catching the show's rebroadcast at midday. For those of you just joining us, you are listening to The Early Show with your hostess from across the pond, Fiorella de Maria. Our call-in telephone number is 844-527-8723. That's 844-527-8723. And the Crusader Stadium chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. Do talk to me as you enjoy a hearty full English breakfast in honour of the state opening of Parliament. If you have missed the show so far, never fear. You can get the whole of the early show as a podcast, same day from crusademax.com. And we have been talking about National Bittersweet Chocolate with Almonds Day. There is such a thing. A time capsule buried in Liverpool in 1971 has been unearthed and the police, because it was buried at a police station, are looking for the three builders who buried it. And I have been asking, do you know of anyone who has buried a time capsule? Have you ever done so? And if you did, what would you put in the time capsule to remember 2023? Let's try and keep it cheerful, shall we? I've also been talking about the row that has broken out over Fiona, the loneliest sheep in Britain, who's just been rescued from the bottom of a cliff, shorn of her massive fleece and given a more than comfortable home. But animal welfare activists have a problem with it because they always have a problem with everything. Oh, Mike, thank you so much for the beautiful, very, very non-dreadful music. That's the, the King's Speech. That is the soundtrack to the King's Speech. Is it just me or is that just the best film ever? I love the King's Speech so much. It's one of my favourite films and it helps that I do like Colin Firth very, very much. He's one of my favourite actors. Um, and I, I just, oh, just hearing the music and seeing that picture in the chat room of uh, Colin Firth being the king and Jeffrey Rush in the background being Lionel, the speech therapist, it just makes me want to watch it all over again. Uh, yes, the king dude saying, non-dreadful, thank you. Uh, Dr. Torres is saying, play some Paul McCartney's Uncle Albert. Is that the name of the song, Uncle Something, It's Been a While? King Dude thinks she would literally code out on air if I played Hands Across the Water. Yes, I mean, you don't really want, you know, a sudden radio silence, do you? Or worse, a, a kind of thunk and I'm gone with the shock. Um, Jeffy Mann is asking, because it, it is the state opening of Parliament today. The King has arrived at Parliament in his carriage. It's all very exciting. This is officially the beginning of the parliamentary year, which is why there is this huge ceremony. And... He's arrived. He will give a speech which will lay out the government's plans for the year. There will then be a debate. Um, this is, in fact, not the first time he's ever uh, been part of this ceremony because he, in fact, read the, the speech on behalf of the Queen last year. But this is his first time as King Charles III. And uh, Jeffy Mann is asking, it got me wondering if there is a difference between a king's speech and a queen's speech, like maybe the king has to come in a different way or stand in a different position or use a different podium, etc., something to spice things up. No, because the role is the, the same. He is the monarch. So, yes, he will sit in the same throne. He um, 
will wear the same ceremonial robes. However, what will be a little bit different, obviously, to his late mother is that the clothes he wears will be a little bit different because he's wearing the uniform of the Admiral of the Fleet Royal, um, the Royal Navy. So it's the um, the Fleet Royal Naval dress uniform, uh, because that is his role. And obviously, the the Queen did in fact wear uniform. The late Queen wore uniform uh, during the war. She was the last head of state when she died who had worn uniform during the Second World War, but she she never wore it um, for, for ceremonial occasions. So that is one thing that will be a little bit different, and the the speech itself will be similar and. All the rituals will be pretty much the same. There are some wonderfully quirky moments. I talked about the the independence of Parliament from the monarch. And one of the ways this is shown, this has just happened, in fact, this is all happening live, is that Black Rod gets the door slammed in her face. Now, Black Rod, in fact, it's the... Lady Usher of the Black Rod. Black Rod just refers to the, the big black stick, ceremonial stick that they carry. It's an official position. It dates back to 1350. Um, though, in fact, they think it might, it was created in 1350. They think it might date um, back to a slightly different time, but that's the, the first um, reference to it. And it has since, as a position, been adopted by other Commonwealth nations. Uh, there's something equivalent in Australia, New Zealand, um, and various other countries, uh, Canada. What the what Black Rod does, the, the, her job, it's a woman at the moment, is to be responsible for controlling access to and maintaining order within the House of Lords and its areas, its precincts. Uh, currently, the incumbent is Sarah Clark, and one of the ways in which the independence of Parliament from the Crown is demonstrated is that she has just gone up to the doors of the House of Commons, knocked on the doors, and had the doors slammed in her face. It's quite a funny moment, but it's very significant as well. So that has just happened. Um Dr. Torres is saying, Shrek has forever made me associate Fiona with an ogre. Fiona the sheep? Nah, just doesn't work. Fiona is just a very, very popular girl's name in Scotland. I, I think I would have gone with something a bit more imaginative um, if I got to name. I, I would have called the sheep Robinson Crusoe, but I suppose it's a, a she, isn't it? So maybe that wouldn't work. Uh, I can think of some really funny things you could have called a lonely sheep somehow. Um, but yes, it's true. Fiona has that association now, doesn't it? Um Philip is saying, are there any before and after pictures of the sheep? There certainly are. I will see um, if I can access one. I mean, the transformation is huge. You would not know it was the same sheep because, of course, just after being rescued, she had this massive overgrown fleece. It must have weighed so much. I mean, it must have been very uncomfortable for her walking around in it. Massive, matted fleece. It's now been uh, sheared off. And she just looks like a, a normal sheep, you know. Um, Dr. Torres. Um, OK, this is what Dr. Torres thinks happens at the state opening of Parliament. The king enters the room with a backless cloak on and the queen goes in on her hands and busts a backspin a la breakdance style. Um, 
that's <laughs> that would be an interesting um uh, way to uh well it would certainly get some attention wouldn't wouldn't it it's um <laughs> all of these symbols um all of the symbols you see whether it's crowns or for example the the crown that queen camilla is wearing uh was worn by um the the late queen you see it's immortalized in the stamps all british stamps which had the all British stamps had the, the queen's head they now have the king's head and it was that coronet that she was uh painted with um the gold stick uh mary's dowry it conveys the sovereign's orders to the household cavalry it um it derives um i think the um I'm just, I'm just looking. I'm, I'm just having to, to refresh my memory because these things that don't, don't, um, don't come up very often. Um, it's the staff of office um, that the name comes from. It's currently uh, held by Princess Anne, also known as the Princess Royal. Um, all of these things have some kind of a reference to either the power of the either, it's interesting either the power of the monarch or the restrictions on the power of the monarch a bit like black rod um, so all of these uh lady bellamy good morning oh dr torres i think that's such a good idea Tess of the D'Urbervilles would be a good name for the sheep. Okay, can we have a name Fiona, rename Fiona the sheep contest, please? What would you call a lonely sheep? Mm hmm. Any ideas? There we go. I think this is this is going to be fun. But you're seeing. Yes, I mentioned at the end of the first segment that the government is in trouble. Um, the country has. You know, the economic situation has been disastrous for a long time, showing no signs of any considerable improvement. Um, we ju it just feels at the moment as if the government lurches from one disaster to the next. This always happens in the, the closing period of a party that has ruled for slightly too long. This happened with the last with Thatcher's government and Major's government. Eventually, it was just one sleaze scandal after another, and they, they lost, they got completely blown away by a landslide victory by the Labour Party, led by Tony Blair. The same thing happened to the Labour government. It sort of dragged on and on and on. You know, they went from being incredibly powerful and popular to just one fiasco after the other with the Blair and then the Brown government. And then off they went with the Conservative government back. And the same thing is happening all over again. So this is going to be a, an important day for Rishi Sunak in terms of him trying to suggest that he has a really strong programme of change. But it's, it's difficult to see how he can really rescue the situation. The king and queen consort are now leaving the House of Lords and heading to the robing room. They don't get to um, to keep the crown on. <laughs> Various things have to go away. Um, there's generally a feeling that, because the king's speech is now finished, that not a lot has really changed. There were... Um, 16 different bills mentioned 
um, ideas that the government has, none of which seem to have particularly enthused everyone. It's the tougher sentence for serious serious offenders that has particularly, um, I won't say captured the imagination, but it's something that has been rumbling for a long time, particularly in the wake of the Lucy Letby case. There's also going to be a Holocaust memorial in Victoria Tower Gardens opened. So a number of things. Um, investment in self-driving cars and AI, goodness knows what that will mean. But in a more positive spin, talk of the UK taking advantage of Brexit freedoms, take steps to make the economy more competitive. Well, let's hope. Negotiate trade agreements with dynamic economies, delivering jobs and growth in the United Kingdom. We live and pray and hope. Denise M saying, if the sheep were male, I'd suggest calling it woolly bully. <laughs> it does actually look like one enormous ball of wool from a distance. Um, Maggie, would you be able to source some photographs of before and after with sheep? Um I still think Robinson Crusoe would be the right name, male or female. That, that would be my favourite. The fact is, you know, that she's she's been a, a castaway all this time. Just an idea. Anyway, I feel as if we should move on from sheep and Parliament, though. I don't know. I can see some overlap there. It's an interesting anniversary today, and one that I think is a. It's a tricky subject to talk about because it was so controversial at the time, but very much an issue that was on the national conscience for many years before any kind of acknowledgement was made. And that is, on this day in 1995, sorry, in 1998... A wreath was laid at the Cenotaph in Whitehall. That is the, the main war memorial, Britain's sort of central war memorial. There are cenotaphs in every town in Britain commemorating the dead of the First and Second World Wars. But the Cenotaph in Whitehall is the, the major central focal point when it comes to remembering the dead. And on this day in 1998, Families of First World War soldiers who were executed for cowardice or desertion laid a wreath. 306 British soldiers during the First World War were shot at dawn for cowardice or desertion. What was not known or properly understood at the time is that in many cases those young men were suffering from shell shock. They were not aware of the seriousness of what they were doing. They simply wandered off in a state of confusion. There was a long-running campaign to exonerate those young men who had the stain of traitor, coward, deserter on their on their families' consciences. It, it wasn't just that it had you had the stain of that very false accusation on that young man's memory but it was also for the whole family that they were you know they were made to believe that their son their brother their husband was a coward when they were not there was this long campaign and investigation because of course some of the the soldiers who were shot um who were executed 
were executed for good reason, like for murder, say, or genuinely for cowardice. So they had to make sure that they exonerated the right people. So there was this long investigation and eventually um, those 306 young men received an official posthumous pardon. Um, it was a very, very important moment. In my book, We'll Never Tell Them, which we were talking about yesterday because Joseph Pierce had mentioned it, that is one of the storylines, a young man who was falsely accused. And in fact, I based that entire storyline upon a real case where what one of the saddest things about those cases was that the war office did not want people back home to know that young men were being shot for desertion because they felt it would affect morale. You know, soldiers were supposed to be brave, weren't they? So they didn't even tell the families that they had been executed. They told them they died of wounds, which they had because they were shot, but that wasn't actually what happened. And in one case, and this probably happened in a number of cases, the father of the young man concerned was very suspicious Perhaps he heard rumours, perhaps his friends told him something, who knows. But he investigated and he found out exactly what happened. So he had his son's gravestone changed from died of wounds to shot at dawn. Um, a, a valued and loved son. I can't remember the exact words. Um, he died, you know, it was sort of he died a good soldier and a good son or something like that. It was a very, very poignant memorial. But he wanted people to know that his son had been shot at dawn and that he was not ashamed of the fact that he died like that. Um, and so I, I brought it into my own novel because I just found it so heartbreaking that that happened. Those young men, in many cases, they weren't even 20 years old. Many of them were only 18, 19 years old. Some of them were even younger because they lied about their ages. They were very, very seriously mentally ill. They were suffering from what we would probably now call PTSD. They were placed before court martials without any defence. They had to defend themselves. They had no idea what to do. They had to fight for their lives in a short court martial, sometimes lasting only minutes. Um, before being put to death like that. So it was it was a huge scandal. And I'm very grateful. I, I remember when all of this was rumbling. I was at school. There was a huge debate going on. I am very glad that those young men who died are also being remembered, along with all the war dead. What's this? Hang on a second. Oh, this is, yes, if you look um, in the chat room, Maggie has put pictures of before and after the sheep. Looks completely different, yes. Fiona after her haircut. And there's all these, um, yes, Guardian newspaper, Britain's loneliest sheep rescued. And there's even a whole, uh, Maggie's put it in the chat room, a whole kind of diagram of how on earth they managed to rescue her, how she got down there in the first place and how they managed to get her, get her back up there. It was quite an operation. It was quite complicated. It's one minute past the hour. You are listening to The Early Show with your hostess, Fiorella de Maria. If you've missed the show so far, never fear. You can get the whole of The Early Show as a podcast, same day, from crusademax.com. We've been talking about, well, we haven't really been talking about bittersweet chocolate with almonds day, but it is, so there you go, and retinol day. Is anyone going to be brave enough to say that they use retinol? Mm-hmm. You know, to keep the skin nice and smooth, ladies. 
Um, Fiona the sheep, the loneliest sheep in Britain, continues to stir up headlines after animal welfare activists started protesting that her celebrity status would be exploited if she went to live in a perfectly comfortable farm. There we are. They have nothing better to worry about. It is also the state opening of Parliament on the subject of sheep. King Charles III has addressed Parliament. The speech is now over. He has left Parliament. He's left the House of Commons now. And that is the end of the ceremony for the day. But it is definitely not the end of the debate. Lots of arguments going on at the moment about the direction Britain should be taking with a, na a national general election looming next year. It is not looking good for Rishi Sunak's government. And on this day in 1998, families of 306 British soldiers who were executed falsely um, on false charges of cowardice or desertion were able to lay a wreath at the Cenotaph in Whitehall commemorating those lost young men and trying as, as, as much as is possible to right a great historic wrong. I think one of the problems for those poor young men is that in the immediate aftermath of the war, no one was interested in 306 young men who it was believed had, had been executed for desertion when so many thousands and thousands of men had died. I think that little tragedy sort of paled into insignificance. But for the families, it was always a tragedy. We just about... Oh, there was something else we talked about in the first segment I forgot to mention, and that is time capsules. Have you ever buried a time capsule? Do you know anyone who has? And if you were to bury a time capsule today, what would you put in the time capsule? What would immortalise 2023? Bear in mind, it can't be anything too expensive, but and can't be anything perishable, so nothing edible. What would you put in there? I can't help thinking that a nice bottle of something, you know, some vintage wine or something, or um, I don't know if it's a vintage year this year, but some really nice bottle of whiskey or wine that will age well. So that whoever it is who opened the time capsule could toast the year, you know, as they are looking through all the other odds and ends. Do you think that would be quite nice? I mean, I, I can't pack a cheesecake down there or uh, anything else, but you know, a, alcohol would be all right, wouldn't it? Maybe a bottle of retinol. So it's National Retinol Day. I don't know if you could drink that. Anyway, various things that have been mentioned in the King's speech today include more serious. Uh, sentences, stronger sentences for more serious offenders. It will now hopefully be compulsory for convicted criminals to face the courts for sentencing. At the moment, it is not necessary for a convicted criminal to turn up in court for their sentencing. The sentence can be read by the judge to an empty dock. This is felt to be cowardly and a way for serious criminals to avoid responsibility. One thing that has been pointed out, though, is that they have said that there will be harsher penalties if criminals refuse to turn up in court. But if you're, say, Lucy Letby and you have a full life sentence and you know you will never 
get parole, you will never leave prison, then, well, what greater penalty can you really inflict? It's difficult to see how you could enforce that um, and whether you'd really want to have to drag somebody into the court screaming, whether that would be more or less upsetting for the families. I mean, I can see practical problems here, but I can also see why there has been a very big push to change this. Um, aha, yes, here we go. Things you would put in a time, a time capsule. Scotty Bobby says, our church is making a time capsule full of prayers in our bell tower that is being constructed. That's wonderful. Um, Philip is saying, I think it's atrocious that the country would execute someone for desertion. Treason, yes, but for refusing to fight. Um, yes, not all armies do that or have done that histor historically. They usually will go to prison. Um, obviously, you don't want people, you don't want soldiers running away when you're going into battle. But some armies, and I think the US Army had this rules, certainly in the First World War, I don't know what it was like subsequently, that if you volunteer to join the army, then you are a volunteer. You can't therefore be compelled. Um, if you do run away, sure, they were punished in some way, but they weren't punished with death. Um, I think there was, at the time, it was such a brutal war that, and so, so, so many men died there was nothing but contempt for men who ran away. Um, and I've come across stories of families where someone deserted, a member of the family deserted, and they never spoke of it and they never admitted it. Um, the shame was huge. Um, however, with greater understanding of, well, the psychological aspects of warfare and the the youth of the young men and the whole process involved public opinion really turned um, and I think you know, the overwhelming majority of people when finally those young soldiers did receive a posthumous pardon were very relieved that it had happened there was a sense of a, a terrible historical injustice being resolved um, CRM 114, the movie Paths of Glory with Kirk J Douglas is a great anti-war film which addresses the coward soldier topic. I've, um, I've, never, I've heard of it, I've never seen it. Um, now, I think it's the sort of subject that does need to be discussed. Um, I felt when I was doing my research to write my book, I didn't initially intend it to be one of the storylines, um, but I was just so moved by these accounts by families about young men who died like that. I just thought, I really want to try to understand how that happened. You know, it was it was so horrific. Clark saying St. Vincent Basilica Parish, um, am I saying this right, in La Trobe, PA? Is PA Pennsylvania? Did I get that right? Or is it Philadelphia? Which one is it? Hey, I'm, I'm getting there with the acronyms. It has a 1990 time capsule that will, will be opened in 2090. That ought to be good. I'm so curious to know what they put in there in 1990. Erin um, Akima, non-perishable foods in a time capsule, so cool whip works. Um, well, is that one of those things that just is so synthetic it never goes off? Um, CRT well, good morning, fellow crusaders. I want some sheep and goats, a cow and some chickens. Is this in the time capsule or just in general, my friend? Chicken lady, good morning. 
Um, Scotty Bobby said, Rolling Rock used to be produced in La Trobe. What is Rolling Rock? I'm getting to that help, I'm out of my depth thing. Paul C saying, my friends and I... Sorry? Oh, it's a beer, Rolling Rock. Okay, sorry, right. Why is it called that? I thought it was something you eat. Um, Paul C saying, my friends and I buried a time capsule in the yard of the house I grew up in when we were around 12 years old. Coffee can with some popular trinkets, a note, a coin from that year. I really don't remember, but often if subsequent owners of the house, I often wonder if subsequent owners of the house have found it. Well, um, yes, that'd be, it would be interesting to know. Or maybe if you left a note, maybe they'll get in touch with you. Erin Akeem is saying, desertion has always until the modern age been punished by death. However, in, first, in World War One, I can see men walking away because of the carnage and meaningless loss of life. The Somme saw almost a million lives lost for about a mile of land. Pointless. Well, um, I think that's it. And uh, I think part of it was... I think part of the change in public opinion was our understanding that these young men were actually ill that and they should have been treated you know there's there are so awful stories of, of these of these young men trying to contact a doctor trying to speak to the army doctor to describe how they're feeling and the doctor just hadn't a clue because nobody nobody had any idea what shell shock was at the time um, they'd got a bit more of an idea of it by the end of the war but I think it was also partly the carnage and of course you did have mutinies uh, during the First World War, they're not talked about a lot. We learnt about them, but the French mutinies, because France lost more soldiers than any other army, than any other country. And there was uh, there was a mutiny, and it was quite serious. And General Pétain had to meet with the ringleaders and discuss um, the grievances. In fact, though, the ringleaders were shot. They, the conversation only went so far. Yes, they did take into account the grievances of soldiers, but they were not prepared to encourage mutiny either. And yet, of course, now we just think, well, why didn't more people mutiny? Why did they go over the top? Why did they walk into no man's land into all that machine gun fire? But I suppose it was a different age and a different time. But it's hard not to ask that question. And one wonders, in fact, if there were more mutinies that we don't know about that were just a little more quiet perhaps um but yes as erin akima says the, the loss of life was so huge um schaefer saying i'd rather have the opportunity for dessert than dessert than desert you would yes i don't know if you got you probably you probably got the chance of dessert after you deserted i don't know i'm, I'm getting lost now sorry um Yes, I gather, I don't know if this is correct or not, in the musical Oh, What a Lovely War, there's a scene when they're depicting the French mutinies where when the soldiers are finally forced to go over into no man's land, they said, we are sheep to the slaughter. And they actually went out going, bah, actually pretending to be sheep in protest. I don't know if that actually happened, but it's, it's a chilling moment. Um, in the uh, in the stage adaptation, when when they do that, it's absolutely horrific. Um, so you know, God bless those young men. There is a monument. I don't know where the monument has been placed, but it's quite um, it's quite an arresting uh, monument because it depicts a young man blindfolded, 
because when they were, what almost made it worse was when they were executed, they were shot by their own regiment because the idea was they deserted their regiment, they'd let down their regiment. But thinking about it, it must have been incredibly traumatic for the regiment as well because they were shooting one of their own. Um, it's it's horrific to consider. So no, it, it was a horrible chapter and quite right. You know, As we're getting towards Remembrance Day, it's important that we, we also remember the unsavoury parts, the unjust moments in any war. We are coming up to the end of the programme. Um, it always goes so quickly and I don't know how I've managed to dart between sheep and remembrance and nobody has said anything about bittersweet chocolate with almonds i'm just pointing this out this is the one subject no one has taken any interest in i think i'm going to have to try and remember where we even buried our time capsule it is somewhere in my garden it was an old biscuit tin sealed up because the biscuit tin was metal and we sealed it up very carefully but I actually can't remember where we buried it, so I can't be tempted to dig it up again. And it may well just sit there for ages. Mike, are you there? I am. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Isn't this crazy? Like, you know, there's, there's nothing else for us to worry about. We are worrying about a sheep. I'm not worried about a sheep. Oh, I think Fiona the sheep is having the life of Riley and will continue to dine out on her experience for the rest of her little life. <laughs> now, you're going to have to explain to the youngsters in the chat room life of Riley. It's an expression. You know, what life... it, you know what it's based on, though? No, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> All right. Okay, ma'am. Your cultural education begins today <laughs> at the end of my show. You and your children and your husband are ordered to report for him. one hour of cult of culturation. It was right. a TV the- show called Life of Riley. Really? Yes. That- Look no, it up. It must be. It's got to be older than that. Oh, it's, it's from the early '60s. Okay. Uh, maybe they based it upon something else, but basically Riley. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up while you're talking. Okay. So basically, uh, uh, Riley has no cares in uh, the world. He lives life of Riley. He just doesn't care. <laughs> life of Riley. Okay, I'm just looking this up. I'm trying to remember of, who played Riley. Life of Riley meaning. Um. It doesn't say the origin though, does it? No, uh, as I said, it may... Uh, I think it's older than that. I'm looking it up now, okay. just a minute. Well, it, it could be. Kind Origin, of, okay. okay. Kind of 1880s. Like... Oh, so there was a Riley back in the 1880s? Yeah, it's... um, It's, uh, Sydney it's an old song. Is that Mr. Riley? Um, uh, okay, well, I only know the describes... television. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, is that Mr. Riley? And it describes... The, char- the title character describes what he'd do if he suddenly became wealthy. Yeah, I <laughs> and and Riley did become wealthy. Mm-hmm. So that was an expression. Yeah. Uh, I, my uncle used to say this all the time that my brother and I were living the life of Riley, and I never knew what it meant either. So mm. because the TV show reruns had were in their infancy in the early 1980s, so <laughs> I had never seen Life of Riley. Yeah. Well, there you go.
Life of Riley. Mr. There, but Riley. there's another one. Do you remember In Like Flynn? Nope. Look it up. It's going to be one of these really embarrassing cross-talks, isn't it? Should I go now? It, it, um, in Like Flynn was, I think, based upon something that was said in a movie. Um, or maybe it was In Like Flint that starred Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. That sounds plausible, I suppose. You could probably do a whole show on these old adages and what the origin of them were. Yeah. Shall I do that? I love stuff like that. Yeah, maybe you should. Okay. I'm making a note. I'm making now, a note. As far as the King's Speech goes, uh, yeah. I am detecting a note of resignation in the sound of your voice. Well, about the about the election? No, just about things uh, with the British government in general. Well, I just think, you know, it's been... The, I, I just feel that there are there's a very obvious pattern when it comes to British politics. You have one party in power for about 12, 13 years, over 10 years usually. Mm -hmm. And towards the end, they just get very stagnant and they, they run out of ideas. They get into a rut. Um, they lose public confidence. You you tend to end up getting scandals and things like that, which adds to that. Um, they stop responding in a very proactive way. And then they get kicked out with usually a huge landslide. It's It happened with the major government back in the 90s. It happened with the uh, Blair Brown government. And I just think we're heading that way. And maybe I shouldn't be being so defeatist, but I just, I cannot see how Sunak can win this. Yeah, I don't know enough about the uh, the, mm. par uh, the party system. I do know that the Conservative Party is not conservative and that um, the Labour Party is not a Labour Party. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, this is the other thing is that it's a very long time. Um, basically, Blair got rid of the socialism from uh, from the Labour Party. He okay. turned it into he turned it into a soft Tory party um, to make it electable. They worked out that hard left doesn't get elected. So he sold the, the party's principles to win an election. Um, some people said, well what sort of was the point of that? We may as well vote Tory rather than vote for red Tories. Um, but of course part of what that did then was it not not only did it push the Labour Party to the right, it also, to some extent, pushed the Conservative Party to the left because the Conservative Party then had to try to regain the middle ground. And that, I think, is why, really, we have this slightly odd situation now where we have a Tory party that's not Tory and a, and a Labour party that's not Labour. I don't feel there's an awful lot to choose between them these days. Well, I just wonder if there are actually, are there any actual Tories um, well, there are a few MPs. Okay, so who what, I say what, like what, that. when I say Tory, I mean like Tories, nineteenth, eighteenth, 19th century Tories. What? Well, uh, Rees Mogg, <laughs> possibly. Edmund Burke was a Tory. Yeah. Yes. I mean, but he was a statesman too. Yes, I mean, some of the there are individuals who you would probably recognize as old Tories, but they are fewer and far between. And I have been wondering a lot about what on earth is going on internally mm -hmm. for some years now, because we've had situations, for example, my parents' MP is a Tory, and he was always 
very good on social issues. Um, he, you know, he voted with the pro-life movement, which not many do. Um, and suddenly, he's completely changed his tune. He's either abstaining from pro-life votes, or he's going. He's voting with the other side. And that makes me think that there's something going on, that there's pressure being put on individuals, possibly. But you don't change your mind fundamentally like that when you're in your early 60s. You, know, you don't go from having a pretty much completely clean pro-life record to suddenly discovering that you're really worried about access to abortion facilities. It just doesn't happen. Something's going on. Somebody's being nobbled. Um, but I'm I'm not absolutely 100 percent sure what is what it is. But there's definitely definitely nothing good's going on. Well, I, I think it's uh, it, it's indicative of the time uh, in which we live that mm. uh, the smart guys, the wise people from the 19th, uh, the 18th, and uh, the uh, the 18th century, and the early part of the 19th century warned about the formation of political parties. That politi uh, pol political parties ultimately lead to what are called factions. And if you have factions in your government, then it can't possibly be representative because it is it, it spends most of its time dueling it out with the other faction, which is what we have here. We, we have complete and total, um, uh, they used to call it gridlock, but we have complete and total um, uh, inactivity. No one, <laughs> they're all neutered. They're all mm -hmm. terrified to do anything. And it, well, unless yeah. it's with the support of the faction. But is the, but is what the fact, this is with the, the great grift here to me. So the, the people in the faction have to use the state, the fifth estate, state run, state owned media to try to convince people like me and you that their faction is on my side and that their faction is executing what I want them to do. But they're not. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's unavoidable, though. Well, not if you Surely, had a king. Yeah. So yeah, King uh, Henry. Who, okay, who's the who was the last English king that was a saint? Is it William the Third? Oh golly, um, who's uh, you're going back a very long way. <laughs> you see, <laughs> <laughs> um, was it William the uh, was it William the Third? No, Isn't he a saint? Sorry. Is he a Saint William? No. No, no, William III, as in William of Orange. Uh, okay, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong William. Uh, one of the Henrys, um, is, is is it one of the Henrys? Is it the Henry IV? No, he's not a saint. No, um, well, Edward the Confessor. But Edward the Confessor was, is a saint. Yes. Okay. So, was, you have to go back. <laughs> you have to go back a very long way. <laughs> well, Joseph um, Pierce says in his book. <laughs> no, it's, it's. I mean, this is the other thing: is that it's a very long time. Um, basically, Blair got rid of the socialism from uh, from the Labour Party. He okay. turned it into he turned it into a soft Tory party um, to make it electable. They worked out that hard left doesn't get elected, so he sold the the party's principles to win an election. Um, some people said, well, what sort of was the point of that? We may as well vote Tory rather than vote for red Tories. Um, but of course, part of what that did then was it 
not not only did it push the Labour Party to the right, it also to some extent pushed the Conservative Party to the left because the Conservative Party then had to try to regain the middle ground. And that, I think, is why, really, we have this slightly odd situation now where we have a Tory party that's not Tory and a, and a Labour party that's not Labour. I don't feel there's an awful lot to choose between them these days. Well, I just wonder if there are actually, are there any actual Tories? Um, well, there are well, a few MPs okay, so who what, I would say what, like what, that. When I say Tory, I mean, like, Tories. 19th, 18th, 19th century Tories. What? Oh, uh, Rhys Mogg, possibly? <laughs> Edmund Burke was a Tory. Yeah. Yes. I mean, but he was a statesman, too. Yes, I mean, some of the... There are individuals who you would probably recognise as old Tories, but they are fewer and far between. And I have been wondering a lot about what on earth is going on internally mm -hmm. for some years now because we've had situations for example my parents mp is a tory and he was always very good on social issues um he you know he voted with the pro-life movement which not many do um and suddenly he's completely changed his tune he's either abstaining from pro-life votes or he's going he's voting with the other side and that makes me think that there's something going on that there's pressure being put on individuals possibly but you don't change your mind fundamentally like that when you're in your early 60s you know you don't go from having a pretty much completely clean pro-life record to suddenly discovering that you're really worried about access to abortion facilities. It just doesn't happen. Something's going on. Somebody's being nobbled. Um, but I'm I'm not absolutely 100% sure what, is, what it is. But there's definitely definitely nothing good's going on. Well, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's indicative of the time uh, in which we live that... Mm. Uh, the smart guys, the wise people from the 19th, uh, the 18th, and uh, the uh, the 18th century, and the early part of the 19th century, warned about the formation of political parties. That polit uh, pol political parties ultimately lead to what are called factions, and if you have factions in your government then it can't possibly be representative because it is. it spends most of its time dueling it out with the other faction, which is what we have here. We, we have complete and total, um, uh, they used to call it gridlock, but we have complete and total um, uh, inactivity. No one, <laughs> they're all neutered. They're all mm -hmm. terrified to do anything and, well, ex unless yeah. it's with the support of the faction. But is the but is what the fact with this is with the the great grift here to me. So the the people in the faction have to use the state the fifth estate state run state owned media to try to convince people like me and you that their faction is on my side and that their faction is executing what I want them to do. But they're not. Yeah, I think that's I think that's unavoidable though. Well, not if you Surely, had a king. Yeah. Let's so, say yeah, King uh, Henry. Who, okay, who was the who was the last English king that was a saint? Is it William the Third? Oh golly, um, who was the? Uh, 
You're going back a very long way. <laughs> you see. <laughs> <laughs> um, was it William the uh, Was it William the Third? No. Isn't he a saint? Uh, Is he a Saint William? No, no, no. William the Third, as in William of Orange. Uh, okay, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong William. Uh, one of the Henrys um, is, is. Is it one of the Henrys? Is it the Henry the Fourth? No, he's not a saint. No, um, well, Edward the Confessor. But Edward the back- Confessor was is a saint. Yes. Okay. So was- you have to go back. <laughs> you have to go back a very long way. <laughs> well, Joseph um, Pierce says in his book on Mary England or on the history of a true history of England, he says that the end of the end of the twelfth century or thirteenth century, beginning of the fourteenth, was done. <laughs> the glory yeah. days of England were over. <laughs> Did you read his book? Far. Did you read his book? Which one? The one with the green cover, A True History of England. Um, no, I haven't read that one yet. I've just reviewed um, uh, 12 great books. Okay. Well, he uh, the, this book came out about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, A True History of England. Um, because, you know, he's written Merry Old England and a couple of other kind mm. of short that focus on different times. Well, the true history of England starts in, you know, 5th, 6th century and goes all the way up until, I think, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, but <laughs> he gets like the fourth or fifth chapter, and you could tell he's lamenting that he has to move on <laughs> from the 13th century or from the 12th century oh, to the 13th because it gets so bad that, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a, uh, it, it, it's a cliff that the, uh, the, that the government goes over. I, I mean, if, if you were to look at the kingship or if you were to look at the last days of the House of Tudor, uh, Henry the Seventh. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Henry the Seventh, not so bad. His son Arthur, who obviously dies way too prematurely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what if Arthur doesn't die? If Arthur oh. doesn't die, then there's no Henry the Eighth, right? Yeah. Uh, but Henry takes up the mantle, and he's a pretty good king. I mean, I mean, the Pope awards him defensor fidei. He's the defender of the yeah. faith. Yep. But <laughs> funny thing happened with a horny old king who wanted a boy for <laughs> an heir. <laughs> there is a there is a theory that the sudden change in Henry VIII was due to a jousting accident. I had not heard this. Yes, what one of the theories is because he was actually in his early years, he was a Renaissance prince. You know, he was actually very humane. He was highly educated. And he had a sudden, complete change of personality where he, he just became incredibly risk-taking, very aggressive, very cruel. You know, his his whole, um, his whole persona appeared to change. And one of the theories is it happened around the time that he suffered a head injury from a jousting accident. Interesting. And it is known that that can happen, that if a person suffers brain damage, that it can completely change them. Well, and in, if that's the case, then, gosh, you know, it almost raises more questions than it answers. Well, it is said that George III died of syphilis and went mad before he died. George III? George well, III. He, yeah, he had, um, no, but he had a, he had a, a kidney condition, didn't he? Uh, my, my, I, I thought uh, well, the rumor in the States was it was syphilis. But here's something about Henry. Um, when, when we went to England and we went on a punting tour... Oh, yes. Yes, yes, of of Cambridge. Um, yeah. We went to the front side first, and then we went on the river side of what's called King's College today. 
You know they just make it up, don't you? They just made that stuff up? That those guides, they're, they're notorious. Oh no, this Sorry. one, I, well this one I actually, <laughs> the, this, this story is correct. Henry did start the construction of King's College. Oh yes, yes, no, that is true. Yes, yes, so that is true. Um, and it's beautiful, I mean it's a magnificent school. You see from the outside and you go like, there's no way Henry VIII had anything to do with that. <laughs> well he yeah. certainly did, didn't he? Yeah. Um, they demolished the um, the medieval street for that. I did not know that because there is yeah. still some medieval street there. Yeah, but they, it actually they took it straight across the medieval thoroughfare. Can you imagine doing that now? Oh, what a building there! Just right in the middle of the road. Okay, I'm going to try to get you out on time and get you to your children. So I, I would just say uh, I will be interesting to hear what you have to say actually about the contents of the king's speech today, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. Yes, because it'll all have been processed by tomorrow. Okay? Yes, it will. Okay. All right, then it is 29 minutes past the hour. It's been my absolute pleasure to bring you the early show all the way from sunny, cold England. Don't forget to write to me at Fiorella at crusadechannel.com and the chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. I will now leave you with the King Dude, Mike Church himself. You're listening to the Crusade Channel, live talk radio, the way it should be. Oh.